Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Well, low molecular weight phthalates are so, the molecules are so small that they easily pass through the skin and enter the bloodstream. This is why we have phthalates in our urine is because they just migrate right into the bloodstream because the molecule size is so small, passes right through the layers of the skin. Um, and this is why women of childbearing age have the highest levels of phthalates. Um, I think it's 20 times the normal pop rest of the population because they're using so many products your lipstick can have fragrance added your mascara can have fragrances added it's not just through makeup and personal care products again it's through the scented candles the air fresheners laundry detergents cleaning products and so women of childbearing age that are either you know using a lot of these personal care products and or also doing you know house cleaning and laundry and things like that are going to be disproportionately exposed Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Welcome back to the Better Podcast with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie. Today, we are talking all about environmental toxins and endocrine disrupting chemicals. This is going to be such a great conversation to kick off the new year when we are thinking about what are some things that we can change. This is going to be such an applicable conversation for resolutions if you're into that or even just up-leveling whenever you get to this podcast, how we can begin to up-level our life through reducing our exposure to toxins. Now, before I get to today's guest, I just want to read out a beautiful review that came in from the land down under from Australia, from Sophia. And she writes, great content and great presentation. Dr. Stephanie knows her stuff. She has the best conversations with such great guests. I have learned so much because she's so down to earth in the way that she communicates information, ideas, step-by-step, -step, simple, and relatable. I love when she gets real on her podcast, sharing personal and relatable moments, and I can feel her joy and her frustration through her words. She's a real go-getter, uplifting for many, particularly women. I'm definitely a Betty. 
Yay. Thank you. So thank you so much, Sophia. I really appreciate that. And if you are listening and you have found this podcast useful, I would love to invite you to leave a review like Sophia did on the iTunes platform, or if you listen to me on Spotify or uh, any other uh, platform to leave a rating or whatever would be appropriate there. It helps more people find the podcast. And as you may have guessed, I am trying to amalgamate my Betty army together. So the more Bettys I can find, the better podcast, the better off we all are. So I am really, really thankful for the time that you take. I know that you're all busy. And right before we get into uh, speaking about the topic today, just in case you are thinking of um, joining the Betty Body Challenge, which you may or may not be aware of, but it is just in celebration of my upcoming book, The Betty Body. Uh, if you can go to Hello Betty, that's H E L L O B E T T Y dot club, you will see the first thing that will pop up there is the Betty Body Challenge. It's a month long challenge with live uh, coaching with me for the, and we start on uh, the first week of January. So I'd love. Love, love to have you there if this is applicable to you. Okay, on to the show. So spoke today to Laura Adler. She is an environmental toxins expert and educator, certified holistic health coach. And she actually teaches other practitioners how to counsel their clients to um, understand the unaddressed link between chemicals and chronic health problems. So she has been training practitioners for years now and how they can become aware of these everyday toxic exposures so that they can improve client outcomes without them spending hundreds and hundreds of hours researching on their own. So what did we talk about today? Well, first talked about how she got into this line of work. And we talked about how the FDA regulates things. So this is, this was actually quite shocking um, for me. So we talked about the Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act in 1938 and the updates that have made, have been made since then, or maybe more accurately said that have not been made since then. So we talk about the FDA, we talk about the EPA, we talk about this sort of gross misunderstanding that most consumers have that things have been tested before they come to the market. So we have a really robust conversation around that. We talk about um, environmental toxicants, specifically endocrine disrupting chemicals and under and the understanding of how these are toxic. Um, so we have a conversation around the gaps between, um, the evidence that's available and the conclusions that people, um, draw. And so we have the conversation around the word detox, which is sort of this like fluffy, you know, ill-defined word, which can literally be anything from like a juice cleanse to a laxative tea product that some Instagram influencers peddling. Um, so we talk about, you know, tox and detox, what those actually are. And we move into what I think is a very important piece of our understanding of toxicology, and that is the non-monotonic dose response. Said another way, this is the fallacy that people this archaic belief that the dose makes the poison. And you hear this 
a lot. And while that may be true some of the time, like you think of radiation, you know, there is a linear, the more radiation you have, the worse outcomes we see. There are non-linear um toxic and exposure that we are, that may be U-shaped or bell-shaped, that we are not, that we do not have a robust enough understanding around it. So when you hear someone saying the dose makes the poison, we actually talk about where that originated from and what that means. So we talk about that. We talk about obesogens. We talk about personal care products. So specifically, we talk about things like plastics in food preparation and food storage. We talk about feminine products. So we talk about um, the difference between, you know, maybe a more traditional tampon or pad and other products like the Diva Cup, like, um, you know, reusable pads, that kind of thing. Uh, sunscreen and dusts. We talk about uh, BPA is another really big uh, topic that we talk about. So the mis, uh, you know, maybe the misunderstanding that BPA gets all the attention. Like whenever you see a plastic, it's like, hey, we're BPA free, but they may have other uh, bisphenols in the product, which is potentially a even worse for us in terms of developmentally and from an endocrine perspective. And then we end our conversation with how we can be slowly starting to change because as Lara accurately says, this information can be a lot. And when you first see the matrix, you can't unsee it, right? It's like, oh my God, there's plastics everywhere. So she sort of walks us back from the ledge and says, okay, these are the first, second, third things that we might want to consider when we're trying to reduce our, like our cumulative toxic exposure. So this was a wonderful conversation. I think this is one that you might want to listen to a couple of times, uh, as from a, from a knowledge perspective and then from an actionable perspective as well. So let me get all the information and understand where I might be getting the toxins in my environment. And then how can I begin to start eliminating or making healthier swaps? So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Lara Adler. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. 
don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. All right, Laura Adler, welcome to The Better Podcast. I cannot tell you how excited I am to have you here. We are going to geek out together on environmental toxins. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I think this is going to be really fun. Yeah, I have been, like I said to you in the pre-chat, I have been studying your work. You have such a large scope of work that we are going to get into today. And I think as my mind has been blown, I think we are going to help our Bettys also make better choices when it comes to some of the environmental pollutants and toxicants that they are unaware of that are maybe using on the day to day. Yeah. Um, before we get into all that juicy stuff, of course, I always, you know, I, I get to interview a lot of like superheroes and heroines. So I always like to understand your origin story and getting into this kind of work there's not, you know, when I was looking for someone to come on the podcast who could speak about some of these toxicants, there were, you were a name that kept coming up and up and up over and over oh. again. So I, I'm curious if we can start our conversation around what got you into this and why and how you are so passionate about it. What was the, if there was maybe one incident or many that was, that led you into this work around environmental toxicants? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a sort of meandering circuitous journey. Um, I didn't certainly seek out doing this work. It kind of fell in my lap, um, you know, for some context into why I think I'm so passionate about this topic is I grew up in the punk rock scene in the 90s. And so it was very much like, damn the man, you know, and and um, really being hyper aware of injustices in the world, because that is some of what, you know, that that music genre scene kind of likes to highlight. Um, but, you know, that's obviously far removed from this conversation of toxins. But I think there is some of that. Um, sort of ethos that I still carry with me, um, where there is outrage at, at injustices and, and places where things are like, this is not okay that we have the types of exposures that we have. It's not okay that the federal regulations that we have are so poor and that industry gets away with what they get away with. And that is a big part of why I'm passionate. But, you know, I, I got here through um, this world of, of health and wellness and health coaching. I was always like the in addition to being like a weirdly nerdy punk rock kid, I was also like into being a vegetarian and like the environment and, and learning about farming and mad cow disease and all this, you know, 90s 
stuff. Um, uh, and so yeah, that was just my personal, you know, attraction to, to that. I loved the farmer's market. I loved cooking. And, and so that sort of steered me in the direction of the, of the wellness space. Um, and, you know, I, I got nudged in the direction of health coaching and I was like, all right, well, maybe that's an opportunity for me to kind of flex this nerdy muscle around nutrition and wellness and food and toxins still wasn't on my radar at that time. Um, and so, you know, it was really through that work of, of trying to work with people around their weight and their just sort of overall general health um, that I, I kind of stumbled into this whole world, this whole microcosm of environmental toxins, because I had a couple of clients that, you know, no matter what they did, and they did everything that I knew to do at the time, um, they couldn't, but their weight wouldn't budge. You know, they cut out all the inflammatory foods, we did elimination diets, we exercised, we got them sleeping better, like they did all the things that you know, sort of superficially are like, yeah, this is what you should be doing. And nothing happened for them. And so I started digging into the literature, like, what am I missing here in this equation? And one of the things that jumped out at me was these exposures, these low level chronic exposures to these environmental toxins, toxicants that, you know, can, can influence metabolism in ways that lead to weight gain or resistant weight loss. And it was like, what? wait a minute, stop the record. How? How? Well, it wasn't even the how. It was, I have been, I have immersed myself in this world. I've read, you know, 20, 30 books from, you know, college onwards, all about this world. And like, toxins were just not part of that conversation. And I talked to all of the um, uh, uh, other, you know, health coaches, nutritionists, and different types of licensed, unlicensed practitioners that I was connected to at that time. And they were like, yeah, I don't know anything about this. And that struck me as a bigger problem because here we have this population of um, people in the world that are dealing with more chronic illness than ever before. And then we have all these health professionals that are supposed to be the, the sort of conduit to getting to better health. And they just don't have any education on this topic yet the topic exists and the glut of research, even at that time, this was, you know, close to, this was in, this was 11, almost 12 years ago, um, for me anyway, that there was already so much data. There was already so much research and yet it hadn't trickled down into the general awareness for consumers. It hadn't trickled down to practitioners. And that is really what struck me as being not okay. And it was a, a glaring um, gap in the in the education for practitioners and certainly for consumers trying to navigate you know health uh, in the marketplace. Um, it was just this glaring education gap that I felt really called to step into. And you know, one thing that um, and I'm sure you know, this has been your experience as well as you start the more you start learning is like your outrage meter starts getting ticking up yes. and you're like, what? Yes. What? Fuck? Like, how is this? How is this the way it is? Why are we the way we are um, in terms of, you know, the, the, the unregulated chemicals in the marketplace and the poor regulation and the dismissal by a lot of the medical community, the dismissal by a lot of general people in the world that don't think this is a problem. Um, you know, it's that outreach rage meter is part of what fuels me to keep, keep sharing this information because it's not okay. 
Yeah. And I think that which you cannot, you know, if you do not measure it, how can you manage it? Right. And this, it's this idea that if you're not even looking for it, if you don't even think that it's a, a reality, then, you know, it's very similar to when back in the day when, um, they proposed the idea of germs and it was like, yeah, there's these like little bugs that like, that's why we have to wash our hands before surgery. And people thought that you were barking mad if you wanted to wash your hands before surgery, because it's like, well, what are you talking about? These little things on your hands that we can't see. Right. Right, Exactly. Well, it's also, you know, as I love to say, the sort of famous, I don't know if it's famous, but um, you know, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right. Which we say, like, if we don't have, data to show that something is safe that doesn't autumn or something that should we don't have data that proves something is harmful that doesn't by definition mean that it's safe it just means that we don't have the data right um but there's a lot of really big cognitive leaps that people make in the absence of evidence i completely agree with that and i also would say that oftentimes the clinical practice like the clinical what is accepted as evidence-based in the clinical world often lags by 15, 20 years versus what we're seeing in the research. So that's actually paralleling exactly what you're saying, where you, at the time, like 10, 12 years ago, you're like, look at the mountain of evidence around some of these toxicants and no one, you know, you're, whether it's a practitioner or otherwise a clinician has no idea that this is even a possibility that they're bringing into their care with their patients. Right. And, you know, when we look at sort of some of why that, that is, um, you know, the, first of all, like, okay, medical school's pretty long, right. It's like already long. So there's only so much stuff that you can jam in. That's why it's called a practice, right. You constantly learning, like you don't just like know everything the moment you graduate, it's just really the beginning. Um, But, you know, of the medical school curriculums out there that offer training in environmental health or environmental medicine, the average number of hours is only seven. Right. And that's and that's if the program offers it. The average number of hours is seven. And that is um, woefully inadequate, considering that we are ubiquitously exposed. We are all exposed um, you know, some uh, some of these toxicants are present in, you know, 98, 99% of the U.S. population, global population. And so, um, you know, n- not looking at these real life scenarios of exposure, these chronic low dose exposures as part of that curriculum, it's not there yet. That curriculum is still looking at occupational exposures, drug use cigarette smoking, alcohol abuse. And they're looking at it often through that lens, not through this lens of, hey, you know, the personal care products and consumer goods. And so that education that exists is is also lacking. Um, You know, and and there was a a survey, I think this was done in 2013, maybe, um, of medical students on this topic of environmental health. And they basically said, you know, we feel woefully inadequate in, in this area. Like just, we just don't have the training. Same with nurse practitioners. They just don't have the training. And yet, you know, there are, there are environmental medicine uh, doctors in this field that really, um, you know, kind of hang their hat on this understanding that toxicity is the primary driver of disease. Dr. Joseph Pizzorno, founder of Bestier University, leader in this environmental medicine space, like that's, he, he, he sticks his flag in that, that toxins are really underlying all chronic disease to some degree. And it's partly because we're all being exposed. 
So this is, I want to, I want to bridge this conversation with the idea of regulation. So you mentioned it already. I think that this, it'll be useful to define, to define, to define, if I can speak today, uh, how the FDA and the EPA regulate things. And I also, I want to, I want to parse this with a conversation on cognitive dissonance, because I think we were just talking about this kind of before we started recording. And I think that once you learn what kind of regulation or maybe more correctly, lack thereof, it, it can be really difficult to sit with that because you feel, okay, I'm now I'm isolated. I'm in a little rowboat in the middle of the ocean and I have to figure out how to navigate my way to land and no one is actually helping me. So, I mean, at least that's how I felt when I first was like, okay, I'm actually on my own here. I have to take survey and take stock of the areas that I and my family are potentially being exposed and really looking, um, and we'll, we'll talk about some of the personal care products and stuff uh, later, and I'll share with you some of the things that I've discovered, uh, you know, in, in terms of my own habits that I've changed. But I think first understanding and having our Bettys understand how we define or how, what is, what is regulation? Like let's define regulation and, and unregulation as well. Yeah. So it's actually pretty complicated. And I think the position that most people come from is they sort of operate in the world under the assumption that our chemicals are regulated. They are, you know, vetted for safety or for health effects before coming to market. It is just a broad assumption that if a product is for sale, somebody's tested it to make sure that it's safe. That is a sort of pretty standard assumption that people make, except that that's not entirely true. And in some cases, it's not true at all. So, you know, what to make it even more con confusing in terms of chemical regulation, um, there is this very sort of fragmented approach on the federal level um, and then even specifically on the state level to chemical regulation. So there's not one agency that um, or, or uh, agency or, or group, I should say, that regulates chemicals. So we have the Toxic Substances Control Act, which is our primary piece of federal regulation that is responsible for um, uh, most of the chemicals in commerce, but not all. So pesticides are not regulated under TOSCA. Pesticides are regulated under FERFA, which is the Federal Insecticide and Rodenticide Act. So they're regulated by another agency. So when we talk about, oh, like the EPA is regulating pesticide uh, chemicals under TOSCA, this Toxic Substances Control Act, it's a partially true statement. So not all chemicals. Um, we have the Consumer Product Safety Council, which they're the ones that's doing, um, you know, recalls for lead in your children's toys. Uh, if there's a, a lead scare, there's lots of different agencies. The Food and Drug Administration is going to regulate some chemicals as it, um, you know, the original passage, what, what ultimately becomes the FDA as we know it now started as the Food, Drug and Cosmetics Act. That's the FD&C Act. And that was uh, passed in 1938. Now, they don't regulate everything, right? They regulate food, drugs, and cosmetics, asterisk, small print, not really. Um, <laughs> and we can come back to that. Um, but, you know, we have to, one, recognize that there's this incredibly splintered approach. There's not one organization or agency that's responsible for regulating all chemicals in all different categories. They've splintered that approach. 
drugs are regulated by the FDA. Um, you know, like I said, pesticides are regulated by another agency. Chemicals in, in consumer products are, are regulated sometimes by yet another agency. So it's, it's a splintered approach that makes it confusing. Um, so that is a problem. The other thing is that we just have incredibly slow transformation of our policy. So for example, this um, uh, Food, Drug and Cosmetics Act originally passed in 1938, certain aspects of that policy have been updated over the years, have been modernized because you know lots of things are different since 1938, like lots of things have changed. And so, you know, certainly the, the regulations around food, certainly the regulations around drugs have been modernized, but the cosmetics portion of that Food, Drug and Cosmetics Act of 1938 has never been updated. It's a page and a half long. And so, and what it does regulate is it's like, no, 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 we're really looking at like um, labeling fraud, that you can't say your product contains an ingredient that it doesn't contain. That's that's the basically the extent of that regulation. And so when people are like, oh, my skincare products, like, of course, they've been tested for safety. My cosmetics, of course, they've been tested for safety. They haven't because the law doesn't require them to do so. There is no requirement. You can go to the FDA's website and they say, like, the way that we regulate cosmetics is different from how we regulate everything else. And basically, we don't. With a few exceptions to certain ingredients like coal tar dyes, um, they will regulate those. But for the majority of uh, chemicals that are used in cosmetics, it is up to the manufacturer to produce a safe product. But that doesn't always happen. So, so cosmetics is how how large would you estimate it? Would that be a billion dollar industry? Oh, it's a multi billion dollar industry. I mean, I don't know what the figure is, but it, certainly globally, it's a multi billion dollar industry. So, a multi billion dollar industry. Basically, what you're saying is there's an honor system in place. They self regulate. They're self regulated. I mean, that's just. It's the fox guarding the hen house. It's yes. the fox guarding the hen house. And so what happens is they say, oh, trust us, it's safe. Or what they're looking for. So we have like the cosmetic, cosmetic ingredient review panel, which is like people will point to that and be like, oh, well, the cosmetic ingredient review panel said it was safe. Well, this is an organization that is um, manned by industry. So this is an industry group. Mm -hmm. That basically looks at these chemicals and they're the ones that they, there's no um, requirement to, um, to, to meet whatever recommendations they make. They're merely recommendations. So there's no, you know, authority that they have, but what they're looking for typically when they're looking at whether or not a chemical or an ingredient in some skincare product or what have you um, is harmful is they're looking for acute reactions. They're looking for rashes. They're looking for blistering. They're looking for things like hair loss. Short-term stuff. Short-term acute stuff. That is what their, their sort of checklist is of whether or not something is, would be considered harmful. And that's a, a, a giant net with giant holes all over it. We are Correct. not having all the problems, right? Yeah, like yeah. Yeah, some of the problems, but you know, the problem um, with most of these toxicants is not acute exposures. Acute exposures are going to exist in an occupational setting. If you work in a factory, if you, you know, work in agriculture, if you're doing pesticide application, if you're working in any kind of, um, you know, manufacturing 
capacity, you are going to have elevated exposures. Um, there's also, interestingly, para-occupational uh, exposures, which are basically the spouses and family members of those people that are working in factories who come home with their clothes covered in dust or chemicals, and then they bring those chemicals home to their family. So the families of people working in occupational settings can also have more elevated exposures than somebody not working in that setting, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then the acute reactions, they're looking at isolated compounds or chemicals, correct? Like they're not looking at you know, putting in three or four chemicals, let's say into your shampoo or, or, or whatever it is. Yes. They test in isolation, not formulation is how I say it. So mm -hmm. they're not testing your shampoo. Um, uh, and this is where we get into like the whole animal testing conversation and that animal testing is not required and companies that do animal testing, for example, like we you know with rabbits and testing chemicals on their eyes because their eyes are closer um, uh, uh, to the way that our eyes are. Um, those are not required. They just do that for a um, uh, for legal reasons to say like, hey, we tested it, didn't have any problems, so like it's fine. Um, but even that, even animal testing has become. There's a lot of controversy around, like you know, very many. Uh, and I'm not saying this is either the right thing or the wrong thing, but people will say, well, it's cruel. It's animal cruelty to take rabbits and test them and drop these things in their eyes. Yes. I mean, I don't disagree with that. And, um, you know, we don't necessarily have a, a better model. Um, we don't have AI that's and you probably can't do it on humans. You can't be like, Hey, let's, right. you let's can't test chemicals on humans because right. that's that we have from a, from a species perspective have, decided that that is unethical, which mm -hmm. understandably it is. And so we have to test them on something. Um, but, you know, this idea again, that, um, you know, our products have been tested for safety is just not, that's just not a, it's just not real. It's not true. I mean, you can, like I said, you can go to the FDA's website. They clearly state we don't regulate chemicals and we don't say that things are, are safe. Um, and like I, we were just saying is this idea of, um, you know, when chemicals are tested, first of all, and this is where we can get into that, like, you know, whole toxicity conversation of, of who declares yes. what is toxic, mm -hmm. right? This is the field of toxicology does this, um, is what they're looking for are these short-term acute exposures or uh, effects, um, but they're also only testing things in isolation. So, there exists, particularly within the realm of endocrine disrupting chemicals, and we can certainly go down that road. Um, there exists something called the cocktail effect, which is the synergistic effect, where in it, when scientists are testing multiple endocrine disruptors at the same time, they're finding that the effects are amplified. So it's not a one plus one equals two; it's a one plus one equals five, or one plus one equals ten. And so every day on the daily for 40 years. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That is not factored in into this sort of conventional toxicology model of deciding whether or not something is qualifies as being toxic. So, you know, I think that word toxic is thrown around a lot, right? Mm -hmm. when, you know, whether we're using it sort of as this conceptual word of like toxic mascul masculinity or some phrase like that, or like toxic relationships, right? So there's lots of iterations of this word. On the one hand, great, great application of that word. On the other hand, it really kind of strips the, the, the meaning out of the 
Well, water, it waters down the definition. It waters it down. Yeah. Certainly this is true also for the concept of detoxification, right? right. Like Tox and detox. Yeah. yeah, it's it's yeah. it's really watered down. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that I'm a really big advocate for is being as precise in your language as possible, right? I strive for um, unambiguous, uh, uh, un- being unambiguously clear, right? Yeah. This is what I mean. This is what I say. I don't mean this. I don't mean that. And, and really spelling that out for people because it's so easy to get confused with this terminology. It's so easy, um, especially when you have companies that hang their hat on this marketing and they're like, oh, we've got this detox skincare skin mask that's not doing anything. Right. Or some laxative tea from some Instagram influencer. It's just going yeah, to honestly everywhere. dehydrate you. And anyway, yeah. Well, let, let's actually double click on the, the, this non-monotonic dose response, this definition of toxicology that you were just alluding to. And I'll preface this with a story. Um, I saw that there's a well-known uh, doctor that um, I follow and he had posted on Instagram, like it was like a picture of, um, I want to say it was like tuna or swordfish or something. He was having some fish, like some big fish meal. And someone on his Instagram was like, well, aren't you worried about mercury? Aren't you worried about the mercury that's contained in this fish? And his response, which... I mean, he's very well known. You know, you know what it's going to be, right? It was like, well, doesn't the dose make the poison? And like thousands of people liked it. And it's like, you're bullying him. And, and I said to myself, okay, sometimes, yes, sometimes the dose does make the poison and sometimes it's nonlinear. So I, I wanted you to talk about why this thinking, this very, black and white linear thinking is not, does not always hold water is not always, um, the way that we should be thinking about toxins. Right. Great. Excellent. I love this topic. So the, what, what this dose makes the poison comment that he made or response so common. We see this everywhere. Um, this really is the foundation of toxicology. It was a, a phrase. He didn't exactly say this. He said some more verbose 16th century version of this goes back to Paracelsus, who basically is deemed as like the father or grandfather of toxicology. Like he kind of invented the field of toxicology. And basically what he's saying is like, look, everything can be a poison. It's just the dose that matters. That is what defines whether or not something is a poison or a toxin. And, you know, where I see this the most, especially in like, you know, social media comments is, you know, oh, even a water can kill you if you have too much, right? Or people get bent out of shape about like talking about chemicals and they throw the like dihydrogen monoxide. Yeah. Oh, you've heard of chemicals like dihydrogen monoxide, which I'm like, okay, bro, sit down. You're, yes. that is a 20 year old <laughs> joke, but the dihydrogen monoxide is water. And so, right. yeah, too much water can kill you. This is true. Um, and so, what Why do we is, all see the bros? Why is it all bro science? It's, it's always bro science. <laughs> but I'm always, I laugh when I get those because I'm like, you literally, you, I know you don't know this, except that in that particular instance, when that happened, I literally explained that in the caption. So I was like, you didn't even read my caption. I, I'm, you are exactly what I was making fun of in my caption, but that's okay. Right. Um, as I see this everywhere. And this forms the, the basis of toxicology, where basically toxicology says, look, anything is a poison, it's just the dose that matters. And the way that's represented on a graph is in a um, um, monotonic or 
non-changing, right? It's not changing this linear dose response curve. You know, if we think of an X and Y axis, it's either like a straight line going up or a straight line going down, meaning positive or negative association. And, um, and, and that is, that's just the, that's the foundation. Everything follows that rule. That is the assumption is that everything follows that rule. However, what's fascinating to me is that if we're looking at the spectrum of doses and exposures and science disciplines, we have toxicology and then we have pharmacology. And these are sister disciplines. They're on the same. Correct. They're on the same graph, spectrum. right? Yes. Yeah. It's the same spectrum. It's just like pharma, pharma, pharmacology is like, what's the therapeutic dose? And then, it, and then it starts bleeding into, okay, when is this dose too much that it becomes toxic? So that's, they are sister disciplines, except that they somehow don't talk to each other because our pharmacologists, along with our endocrinologists, realize as a fundamental fact of the way that those fields of sciences work is that that linear monotonic dose response curve, meaning the dose always makes the poison, they know that that's not true all the time. So as I like to say, it's true, but partial. The dose makes the poison is true, but partial. So for example, radiation, a little bit of radiation from, you know, eating a banana or going out in the sun or flying in an airplane, like our body can tolerate that, no big deal. But as our radiation exposures increase, it becomes more dangerous and toxic. So that is an exposure that absolutely adheres to this 16th century idea that the dose makes the poison. Has that assumption ever been tested? May, can I interrupt you for a moment? So just this linearity, has that ever been tested? That Not, in- not adequately, no. Um, I don't, no, I don't think so. Um, you know, I think that it depends on what we mean by tested, right? Because certainly endocrinologists don't have to test it. That's, they fundamentally know that the dose does not always make the poison because that is how the endocrine system works. Right. So it is right. just a, a, a sort of fact of life when it comes to endocrinology, but I don't understand why these fields of sciences don't communicate with each other, right? We don't have toxicologists and endocrinologists communicating. It's like they speak a different language. Now, the problem inherent is in this is that all of our regulatory decisions are based on the science that comes out of toxicology. So a couple of things worth mentioning here before we come back to the dose response curve is that toxicology is typically one, they're testing really high amounts, right? So they'll test an exposure to a chemical or to a substance that's maybe thousands of times higher than what we would ever encounter in real life. And then they pick a couple of lower exposures and they just say, okay, let's test these lower exposures. We'll step down from that that thousands of times higher exposure. And then we're going to stop when we see that there is no observed adverse effect level or no observed adverse effect. That's the no L. Um, So they'll see the, what's called the low L and the no L. So the low L is like the lowest point at which they start seeing an adverse effect. Then they go to the no L, which is the point when they see, I don't see anything bad happening here. They put in a little bit of factor of safety and they assume that everything below that is safe. They just make an assumption, right? They do not actually test that assumption. Toxicology research stops. So toxicology one is not looking at um, realistic real life low dose exposures, which is what's happening at that part of the, the graphs 
graph, um, a portion of that graph where they stop. They just don't go there because they're like, whatever, everything is a dose makes the poison. So if we see that there's no effect here, the assumption is that everything below that also has no effect. So one, they're testing these high levels of chemicals and they're stepping backwards and then they're making an assumption about parts of the data that they don't test, which blows my mind. The other thing is that they're looking for um, really specific endpoints that they deem um, relevant. So, you know, organ changes in organ weight, um, you know, tumor growth, death, sort of the ultimate endpoint. That is their benchmark and their criteria for defining something as toxic. They do not explore slight alterations in thyroid hormone that might lead to chronic disease. They don't look at, um, I just did a presentation on the gut microbiome. They don't look at alterations to the gut microbiome that might predispose somebody to autoimmune disease or that might be associated with their autoimmune disease. They're not looking at slight hormonal changes that might in turn lead to fertility problems down the line. They don't look at those things. They're just not part of the spectrum of endpoints that they consider. And so what that means is that it's as if toxicology is looking way over our heads at exposures and potential health effects, and they're not looking like right in front of them at what is actually happening in real life. And that to me is, you know, even when we say, okay, yes, chemicals, some chemicals are regulated in commerce, in commerce. Um, my thought is always, okay, but like how well are they regulated if the data that we're hanging all of those regulations on is only partial? It's not looking at the full, full picture. So, right. yeah. So going back to this dose response curve with the dose makes the poison, it's, it's a linear um, response curve. And so what that means is it's predictable, right? Just like the radiation, it's predictable. We know where it's going. And that is, again, this, this assumption that everything follows that path. When we run specifically into endocrine disrupting chemicals, and these are chemicals that you know, can block or mimic the role of natural hormones in the body, not just estrogen and testosterone, but you know, everything from leptin and ghrelin to melatonin, like everything, right? Like any, anything, um, all of these hormones. And so um, what we see with endocrine disrupting chemicals is they don't always follow this linear, predictable, monotonic dose response. They just don't always do that. And then we have to ask the question, well, why don't they always do that? And this is where we slide into the field of endocrinology, right? Right. We have a fixed number of hormone receptors on our cells and the, the levels of hormones that are naturally present in our body and a normal, healthy individual are, are tiny. It is parts per trillion levels of hormones coursing through our, our, our veins. That is what causes, you know, our growth, our development, our maturation, our, you know, hormones, our fertility, everything, our mood, our energy, right? Like they're teeny tiny levels of, of naturally occurring hormones because our body was designed to, to, to communicate on that level. Um, I, I like to say that our hormones are communication messengers and they communicate in whispers. Yes. Like yes. if they're not screaming, there's not tons and tons of hormone coursing through the body. It is really subtle alterations. And so if our body naturally responds to hormones in the parts per trillion, parts per billion level, and then we are exposed to synthetic chemicals that mimic or block hormones that our body interprets as also being hormones, 
and we are exposed at similarly low levels, of course, our body is going to be reactive to those. Of course, those exposures are going to be um, bioactive in the body. And pharmacology and endocrinology know this, right? Most of the drugs that we take are delivered in these really small doses, parts per million, parts per billion doses, equivalent doses, because it's trying to, these medications, pharmaceuticals, hormones, they're trying to act on this really small number of receptors. So if you flood the system with buckets and buckets of chemicals, the receptors are going to max out and they're going to go, well, we're all full up. So anything above this level, like it might cause, you know, some other health effect, but it's not going to affect the signal, the signaling system. It's, yeah. It communicates in whispers. And what we're getting are these little whispers of exposures day in, day out. And um, that is, that is one, why, um, endocrine disrupting chemicals in particular kind of break the mold of this dose makes the poison argument. Um, what we often see specifically with endocrine disrupting chemicals is what's called a non-monotonic dose response curve. So the, the way that our body responds to these infinitesimally small levels, parts per trillion, million, billion, billion, million, um, in the right order, <laughs> um, the way our body responds is, is not predictable. It's not linear. Um, so, for example, the, instead of having a straight line going up or down, which is a monotonic curve, we might get something that's a, a U-shape, where in the beginning you get a really high response and then the response quiets down and then it goes high again. Or you might get an inverted U-shape, so a bell shape, where it's really not really an effect in the beginning and then you get a spike of effect and then it quiets down again as, as the dose increases. Um, and then other times you just kind of get this, you know, squiggly line. That's it's we're not sure. It's just changes. Um, and, um, a good example of this is uh, tamoxifen, which is a breast cancer drug. And it's well known that there is something called a tamoxifen, tamoxifen flare, where in the beginning the doses, you know, it's starting to have an effect, and then all of a sudden there is this flare where women get these really painful breasts as they're starting to go through this um, uh, 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 this medication as the dose increases and then it quiets down again. And so we that's well established. So from a, what's frustrating is that the sort of old boys network of this 16th century founded toxicology field doesn't, they dispute the fact that non-monotonicity is real. They go, that's not real. That's not real. Well, and this is, it's funny because often it's used in marketing jargon, like, oh, it's a low dose SSRI. It's a low dose uh, birth control pill. And just to back your point up, when we are measuring estradiol, when we're measuring estrogen in the body, it's measured in picograms per deciliter. So this, and a picogram, as you just said, is one trillionth of a gram. Testosterone is often measured in nanograms per deciliter, which is an, it's a billionth of a gram. So to, to think that you are not going to have an effect at parts per billion, parts per trillion or parts per million is completely asinine. And there's a, there's an amount of hubris that I think exists there where you have this like no L that you're talking about. And then it's just like the iceberg underneath. You're like, well, I can't see it. So it's probably yeah. not important. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's hubris, but it's also like ignorance of, of how the human body works. Right. 
you know, like, and that's, and that is what's frustrating to me. And so, so, you know, to your, to your point about this, this, you know, doctor who posted about his seafood and the mercury comment, you know, even if something is, I mean, there are mercury can act as an endocrine disruptor. It's referred to as a metalloestrogen along with lead and a lot of other heavy metals. Um, but, you know, lead, for example, there is no, no exposure, which is safe. There is none. I've heard the same about mercury. Like there's no safe human levels of mercury. There <laughs> are like, none. none. And yeah. so it's, it's, you know, sure. Can the body tolerate, are you going to see an effect? No, but that's maybe not right. If you're eating shark or tuna or whatever, mm -hmm. um, periodically, if you eat those things regularly, absolutely. You can see an effect, but this is where we have that bio-individual component where I don't know what else is going on with that dude. Right. I don't know how your detox pathways are working. I don't know how your methylation pathways are working. I don't know what other metal exposures that you have. I don't know how you live your life. And those are, I don't know, your genetics or your epigenetics. Like what other medications? What what other, exactly. Yeah, all the and things. so, you know, yeah. this is where it becomes very um, challenging is it's not like a mercury exposure on one person is going to result in the same effects yeah. for everyone. It's just, it's, it's, where is your weak link? Where is your genetic weak link? And where is, you know, the sort of chink in your armor. Um, and then we also have to factor in like, well, when are, like there are certain times in human development where these exposures are way more meaningful. So certainly when we're looking at, you know, preconception pregnancy in, you know, as, as children that are, are still developing, you know, and I would say children, meaning until you're like in your twenties. I, I was going to say 25, that's like maturation of the MSK and brain. And yes. yes Great. Yeah. So like there is still development happening mm -hmm. and there are critical windows of development during which these exposures, particularly to these pesticides and heavy metals and endocrine disrupting chemicals are going to have a greater out impact on the outcome than if you get that same exact exposure in adulthood. Mm -hmm you might actually have a different outcome. So for example, you know, if we're talking about these endocrine disrupting chemicals and we're saying, okay, well, let's say phthalates, for example, which are ubiquitous, 98% of people have metabolites of phthalates in their urine. Explain what a phthalate is just for yeah. my babies. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's, so it's a plasticizer um, and it, it plays two primary role, two different sort of opposing ish roles. Um, in different materials. So it's used in plastics as a softener. So if we think of like uh, PVC plastic, polyvinyl chloride, big PVC pipe, it's really hard, it's rigid. If we wanna add some resiliency to that plastic, we wanna make it soft like a garden hose, which is also PVC, like a shower curtain, which is also PVC. We add phthalates, which soften the plastic. Rubber ducks in the uh, rubber bath. duckies. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, we just, you know, Halloween masks. I think mm -hmm. of that whenever kids are putting these like gross, stinky, rubbery masks over their faces. I'm like, Ugh. Mm -hmm. that. Um, so phthalates are used to soften plastics, certain types of phthalates. There's high molecular weight phthalates that are used for that purposes, for those purposes. And then we have low molecular weight phthalates, which are found um, in fragranced items and fragranced items you know, air fresheners, scented candles, perfumes, shampoos, deodorants, laundry detergents, household cleaners, anything that's fragranced, even some house paint actually has fragrance added. I don't know why. What? So, oh yeah, you can have like a lavender scent added to your paint, which is don't do that. Don't oh my do that. Goodness. 
So it's, while it's off-gassing, you can also smell the <laughs> Add more off-gassing oh to the mix. Gosh. And so in those fragranced products, phthalates, they're not, they're not what constitute the fragrance. Those are other compounds and musks and synthetics and, and you know, flower essences and whatever um, that are making up the, the, the actual fragrance. But phthalates are added to those fragrances as a fixative um, uh, or sometimes used as a stabilizer for things like color and scent. So it stabilizes so the product doesn't separate out and so that it adheres to our skin or our clothes. So, you know, this is where we see ads for like, you know, downy dryer sheets and it has these fragrance release beads. That means that your clothes will still smell fresh like two months after you wash them. Well, that's because there's probably an increase in phthalates that are used in those products to make sure that the scent molecules don't volatilize and dissipate and that they cling to the materials. So the reason why we can smell like shampoo on our hair 12 hours after we've washed it is probably because of the presence of phthalates that are coating our hair in this plasticizer that's keeping the scent molecules locked into place. And we love our scents, don't we? Oh, we man. love our fragrances, yeah. don't we? Yeah. We do because look, the our our sense of smell is our our most significant memory trigger. So there's a lot of emotion Mm. that comes with smelling something. I mean, you know, I can smell, um, just last week, my, my cat was sick and she had to go on an antibiotic and it was basically amoxicillin and oh, the you know, pink stuff, that pink, pink stuff. stuff. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't pink, but it smelled like that same horrible bubble gum smell. And I was, I was immediately transported because that is, um, you know, our olfactory receptors live in the most primitive part of our brain. Mm -hmm. And we just attach so much memory lives in that part of our brain. So of course, you know, smells are meaningful to us. Dr. Bredesen was on the podcast and he was talking about candles as being like, get rid of all your candles because that's, oh, yeah. and we were talking about this in the context of Alzheimer's, how like it can, you know, trigger uh, beta amyloid plaque laying down tau tangles and beta amyloid plaque in the, in the, in the brain. But that would be another example of like, yeah. But, and also just because it is your, your, you're spending money to pollute the air inside your home. <laughs> well, so when you like, put it that I, way, I mean, that's the that. worst. Oh yeah. God. I mean, look, you know, a lot of people get um, frustrated when they encounter this discussion of toxins and having to make changes to reduce exposures. And one of the biggest objections is that it's expensive. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. If you stop buying scented candles and air fresheners and plug-ins and these reed diffusers and Fabrice the Christmas trees, the Christmas trees and the, the Uber the drivers in your car, I'm talking yes. to you, Uber and Lyft drivers. Yes, please don't do this. Yes, um, you know, not buying these saves you money. So, like, just don't buy them. And if you really do want your house to smell like something, like 
you can diffuse some essential oils sparingly, please, because mm -hmm. over like just because something is natural does not automatically mean that it is safe. Mm -hmm. Mercury is natural. Arsenic is natural. So is cancer. Yum is natural, right? <laughs> yeah. So just because something's natural doesn't mean it's safe. I think that's a people go to either end of the extreme. Everything is safe. Nothing is safe. Um, and I think well, that's, that's worth the that's the frustration, Laura, because I, I think that you get these um, I want to call them evidence based trolls because you'll get you'll get people, you know, I post something about detoxification and you'll get people say, well, I thought that the liver that's like one of the jobs of the liver. How can you suggest that? you know, eating something from the brassica family or something, you know, like I'm, you know, whatever I'm suggesting saunas or whatever. And it's like, that's not what the, you know, that's not how it works. The liver already. And I, and we have this argument. Ignorance. <laughs> Ignorance yeah. because the molecules that are present in those brassica are what allow the liver to do its dang job. Mm -hmm. Right. We need those nutrients are necessary for phase one and phase two detoxification in the liver. So somebody saying that, just highlights their ignorance about how the human body works. Right. They, I get spicy about this because I get these comments all the time. Right. And I just, um, you know, it's. Well, spices, spices are not toxic, right? So we can get, we can get spices. Spices That's can good. be toxic. Spices, <laughs> sorry. So I, I, spices can actually contain a lot of heavy metals. Um, oh, I was trying to make a toxic. joke and that failed horribly. I know. Right. You know um, <laughs> look, this conversation is um, a lot. And as I like to say with a smile on my face that I can be a black cloud and I can ruin anything fun that you're doing. <laughs> I can, I don't want to, but like I have the power to ruin anything. I love um, it. I, I love it. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about, so I want the people who are listening here are now we, we sort of have a, an understanding of, you know, an unregulated industry things that have not been updated for almost a century at this point. Um, and we have an understanding now that, you know, toxicology bleeds into whether or not we want to, you know, uh, admit it into pharmacology um, and that we are working with very small doses and it's the cumulative effect of those doses over time. And it's a multitude of exposures. It's not just the one, you know, SLS or whatever it is in your, in your shampoo, it's the shampoo. And then you go on and you put the makeup on and then you go downstairs and you take your food out of the plastic container and you heat it up in the microwave, like it's all of those things. So let's, let's talk a little bit about personal care products. We touched on phthalates already. Um, I wanted to also talk about feminine products because I think that, um, I wanted to carve out a special category here because I think that there are women still in their reproductive years that every single month are putting this like bleached, super toxic, you know, pad and or tampon or both um, around their vulva for many hours of the day. So can you speak to some potential, well, maybe what some of the potential effects are of using some of these traditional products and then what alternatives we might consider, um, for, uh, for feminine care? Right. So, you know, there's, uh, I think it's the organization women's voices for the earth. He's done uh, a lot of work in this area. They have, a uh, a, a, a I don't know if it was a, a campaign that they did called Detox the Box, which was all like about yeah. this. That was pretty mm -hmm. funny. Mm -hmm. I, I dug that. Um, but what they found is that, you know, these, you know, whether it's a conventional tampon or a pad or whatever, um, that there are 
um, plasticizers, there's phthalates that are present. There's also dioxins that are present because of that bleaching. So it's not that there's necessarily um, chlorine residues from the bleach in these products, but that the, that um, process of bleaching can produce these dioxins, which are very potent carcinogens. Is the exposure significant? I think we don't know enough about isolating those exposures from all the other exposures that we're getting, right? Like this is why research in this space can be really challenging sometimes is because like, how do I isolate? Is it the, is it the pad that's causing the problem? Or is it these other exposures that I'm getting from a thousand other different places that are causing right. the problem? Right. But we do know that that tissue is extremely absorptive, right? And that that is concerning. And so, you know, I do think that it is important for us to be really careful about the products that we're putting into our bodies or onto our bodies in those areas. Um, and I think, you know, if we can move towards at the very least, if somebody's going to use a tampon, let's make sure that it's um, an organic cotton that doesn't have pesticide residues. Uh, most of these are not bleached cotton. Um, so they're organic unbleached cotton, which means that they're avoiding the issues of pesticide residues in the cotton. They're avoiding issues of dioxins. Um, uh, some of the, the sort of conventional tampons often have like layers of polyester, which is a type of plastic. And so we want to minimize the use of those types of products. And, you know, I encourage people if, if they're used to using tampons to start moving towards the silicone menstrual cups, yes. which first of all, they save you so much money. It's a little bit pricier upfront the first time you buy it. But if one's going to last you a couple of years and you never, I mean, I've been using one for six or seven years now. And like, I don't know, haven't had to buy a dang thing. Right. So like it, again, it's one of those changes that it actually saves you money in the long term. So um, uh, the financial aspect of it shouldn't hopefully be a deterrent for people. Um, you know, there are instances in which I think silicone is not an ideal material to use. Um, and that would be like in a high heat oven situation. But in the context of this, I think silicone is um, fine to use, totally uh, safe in, in this model. Um, if we're looking at pads, I think, again, what we're looking for are organic cotton. We're looking, and there's plenty of companies out there that, that offer these. If people want to use reusables, um, you know, uh, cotton pads, like the whole Gladrag style, um, those options exist. But I do really think... Um, uh, that we want to move away from those conventional products. A lot of those products also have fragrances added. Talk about another place where fragrances are sneaking in. Right. And that's just because they're like, you know, trying to, oh, it's got this, you know, layer of fresh scent so that yeah. nobody's, you know, like, a, you know, like the morning breeze or whatever they call it. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's just marketing. These are not, we do not want to have scented products um, near, um, any highly absorptive skin like that. Now, you know, what's I mentioned earlier when I was talking about phthalates that like high molecular weight phthalates are used in plastics and low molecular weight phthalates are used in these fragrance mixtures. Well, low molecular weight phthalates are so, the molecules are so small that they easily pass through the skin and enter the bloodstream. This is why we have phthalates in our urine is because they just migrate right into the bloodstream because the molecule size is so small, it passes right through the layers of the skin. Um, and this is why women of childbearing age have the highest levels of phthalates. Um, I think it's 20 times 
the normal pop rest of the population because they're using so many products. Your lipstick can have fragrance added. Your mascara can have fragrances added. Like this is an unnecessary place, like unnecessary, totally unnecessary. But we have so many of exposed, so many of these exposures. It's not just through makeup and personal care products. Again, it's through the scented candles, the air fresheners, laundry detergents, cleaning products. Yeah. And so women of childbearing age that are either, you know, using a lot of these personal care products and or also doing, you know, house cleaning and laundry and things like that are going to be disproportionately exposed. Um, and that is concerning because these chemicals are reproductive toxins. So the reason why they highlight in the research that they're women of childbearing age is because, you know, these chemicals are going to affect um, or can affect fetal development. They can affect um, outcomes for children in terms of, you know, even things like behavior, ADHD, um, depression, anxiety have all been linked back to these, you know, in utero uh, uh, phthalate exposures. Boys um, that are have exposures to phthalates in the womb um, have, or have higher incidences of um, a birth defect called hypospadias, which is where the urethra does not develop at the end of the penis, but somewhere else along the shaft has to be surgically corrected. Um, uh, there is in rodent studies that are looking at phthalates. This is research that's been done um, by Dr. Shauna Swan. She's brilliant. She's got a lot of papers on this, these topics. Um, they've identified what they call phthalate syndrome in rodents and rodent studies. They're able to replicate this. And phthalate syndrome is represented by this cluster of symptoms like hypospadias, like um, undescended testicles, smaller penis size, but then also this shorter anogenital distance, which is that distance that's measured between the anus and the, the genitals. And that's a marker of masculinization or feminization. So the shorter that anogenital distance, that is a marker of feminization, right? Because women have a smaller distance on their anatomy than men do. And so we're starting to see those same types of symptoms, if you will, in the human population. So it's, you know, yes, we can replicate these in rodent studies, but it's when we start seeing it mirrored in, um, in, in human, in the human population, like that's where it's pretty concerning. Yes. A hundred percent agree. And the, the significance, I just wanted to, you may have already mentioned this, but just in case, um, my listeners didn't catch it, the significance of it, of it being able to be absorbed directly into the bloodstream is that it doesn't go through the liver, yes. which is the detoxification organ. Yes. So for an order for the liver to say, okay, this is a toxin, let me change it into an intermediate and then find a way to excrete it. It doesn't do that. It eventually gets there, right? But when it absorbs directly into the bloodstream, this is where the problem, then it just hangs around and has this opportunity to create and wreak havoc on, you know, developmentally, as you said, neurodevelopmentally, uh, reproductive organs, et cetera. Yeah, that's bypasses first pass metabolism. And this is true for anything that we absorb or that we inhale. Right, right. Let's talk about plastics because- okay. I said to you uh, before we started recording that I have been walking through my house and I'm like, oh my God, there's plastic everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so 
Uh, I was saying to you before, I was like, okay, I bought this Vitamix. It's freaking 500 bucks. And it came with a goddamn plastic thing. And I have been, you know, I've had it for years and, you know, did the bulletproof coffee thing, like hot coffee with the butter, whizzing it up. I've made like broccoli soup in it. Cause that's like one, of, you know, it's like advertised, like make soup in your Vitamix. I'm like, okay, I'll make broccoli soup. So like, I've had like the steam kind of coming out of the thing and it's all hot and whatever. And it's plastic. And it's, yeah, and it's, it's not ideal, right? It's certainly not ideal. So, you know, one of the things that I think is, you know, we all have plastic in our lives. I don't want people to feel plastic phobic because, you know, like the computer that I'm talking to you probably has plastic parts and my phone, you know, like yes. your glasses, our frames are plastic. They like, are plastic. That, they are plastic. Yes, like <laughs> the headphones that you're wearing, like yes. it, are those a concern? No, those are not a concern. Where we want to be really cautious with plastics is where they come in contact with food. And that means what we put food in. And also when we buy food, what is that food packaged in? And there are a couple of things that will in. So first of all, the what's happening um, with these plastics is these plasticizers, whether it's BPA or phthalates or any other compounds that are used in this plastic, they're not um, molecularly bound to the matrix of the plastic. And so what that means is the molecules are like, they can kind of just fall out, right? It's like a, not a tight matrix, like glass is molecularly bound. There's no leaching happening with glass because of the way the molecular structure is, it's impervious to um, any of that. Plastics are not like that. And so we have a natural migration of plastics that are going to happen without any um, outside interference. So for example, um, if we look at like the dashboard of an old car that's been sitting out in the sun, where that um, dashboard, that plastic dash used to have some bounce to it and had some, you know, color, um, over time, it becomes brittle and cracks. And that's because the plasticizers that add that resiliency have migrated out. We see this in like electrical cords. If you have like an old vintage lamp and you try to bend the cord and it cracks and it crumbles, it's because all the plasticizers have migrated out and they've done that on their own through no, with no interaction. And so when, um, so we know that those molecules will migrate out regardless. Um, there are things that exacerbate or speed up that migration, and that includes heat, oil, acidity, and abrasion. And so when we have hot food, especially that might be oily, right, like our bulletproof coffee, where we're putting our MCT oil in or coconut milk or whatever, um, that heat and the oil is going to increase the leaching of those compounds. And so we're going to see some of those compounds in the what we're consuming. Um, you know, we commonly see this with um, like the plastic Tupperware container that had the tomato soup or pasta sauce in it that's like stained orange and it's forever stained orange. Like you, no matter how many times you wash it, it's never going to be like clear again. And the reason for that is because these hot, acidic, oily molecules from your acidic tomato sauce that has oil in it, you probably put it in the container when it was hot, it actually physically embeds itself into the matrix of the plastic because the plastic is not um, impervious, it's porous. And so the reason why you can't clean it is because it's not on the surface of the plastic, it's in the plastic matrix. It's part of the plastic now. Now the inverse of that is if you're getting molecules from your sauce into the plastic, you're also getting molecules from the plastic into your sauce, Correct. right? It's not a one-way street, it's a two-way street here. Right, right. And so, you know, when we're, when we're looking at 
those types of um, plastics that are coming into contact again with heat, oil, acidity, abrasion, and that's where we're scrubbing it or we clean them in the dishwasher. We don't want to do that. Um, and I also add to that time. So if you're looking at like a plastic water bottle that's been, even if it's not been sitting out in the sun or in a hot truck or a hot warehouse, um, if it's been sitting in that bottle for years, you're going to have more plastic into that, in that water than you would have if it was just, you know, newly filled up. So there, those are the things that are, are, are most concerning when it comes to plastics. And so, you know, typically what I encourage people to do if they're like, holy crap, like, wow, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Is just go into your kitchen, open all the cabinets and just, you don't have to do anything, but just look, like observe through this new lens of saying, okay, how much plastic do I have? Are the kid, cups that my kids drink out of plastic, the, are the plates they eat on plastic, are my mixing bowls and pasta strainers plastic? Like where are there opportunities that I can start making swaps for materials like glass, like stainless steel, um, that aren't going to have issues with this chemical migration? And that's kind of where we start on that journey. But to your, your point, like, yeah, I don't think it's wise that people are putting these hot oily foods in their Vitamix. I think what we would want to be using instead is a stainless steel immersion blender, which you can get for like $25. They're not expensive. Yes. Um, They're not without problems. So I think we have to, everything that we're doing is a little bit of a, um, it's a, it's a lesser of two evils choice because there's very rarely perfect choices. And I think that that's okay. So, you know, unfortunately there was some um, um, research a couple of years ago that was like, oh, there are these PFAS chemicals that are used in the motor housing of Vitamix blenders and um, immersion blenders. And it's like, oh God, I just... Again, I'm like, oh God, I'm thinking in my head, I just ordered the stainless steel attachment for the Vitamix. And now I'm like, ah, what's PFAS? Explain what's PFAS. Yeah. Uh, PFAS are perfluoroalkyl substances or poly, uh, per or polyfluoroalkyl uh, substances. These are uh, fluorine based compounds. So fluoride, fluorine is an element. Um, and these are uh, chemicals, you know, we most conventionally uh, are aware of them through their use in like nonstick cookware. Um, so like our nonstick pans and, and waffle irons and stuff like that. Um, those are actually not our most significant exposure sources to those chemicals, but it's the one that we understand the most. And so these chemicals are designed to repel oil and repel water, which is why they are used as and not, nothing sticks to them. They're just really, really um, resistant. So um, these PFAS chemicals are so uh, resistant to breakdown that they are referred to by the scientific community as forever chemicals, meaning every molecule that has ever been created still exists. They are highly persistent chemicals. They don't break down. There's no half-life. There's, I mean, it's, it's in the, well, I mean, in the body, sure, there'll be a half-life, not that they'll break down so much, but that they'll finally get excreted. Or but- they'll outlive us. <laughs> Yes. Well, they will. Right. They they absolutely will. Um, And so, you know, these are if we think of other applications of where we're being exposed to these PFAS chemicals, um, you know, it's anything that has a waterproof or stain proof um, uh, 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 feature. So if we have stain guard treatments on our couches or on our carpets, those are PFAS chemicals. Um, if we, it doesn't have to be stain guard as a brand, but any kind of stain resistant 
treatment um, uh, on our textiles. We're going to see that any waterproofing. Um, so our Gore-Tex rain gear and camping gear and backpacking and tents and all that kind of stuff is coated with this waterproofing hydrophobic substance, which are these PFAS derivatives. There are thousands of them on the marketplace. There's not just a chemical, there's thousands of them. Um, and they're also used in firefighting foam. Um, so firefighting foam results in a large amount of um, water contamination because, you know, they're spraying hundreds of gallons of these chemicals, um, you know, any, so if people live near military bases or if they live near airports where they'll use these foams, um, they contain these PFAS chemicals. Now, the reason why this is concerning is, uh, first of all, um, it is suspected that PFAS compounds or metabolites are measured in like 99% of the human population. So we are all exposed to these and have been for decades because these chemicals have been produced since I think the 1950s. Um, so they've been around for, for quite a while. Now, the, the real problem is that these chemicals um, interfere with thyroid function, among other things. They also are linked to cancer and certainly other types of hormonal disruption. But anything that has a, a fluorine component, fluoride, um, the, the fluoride that's added to drinking water, hydrofluorosicilic acid, these, um, you know, perfluoroalkyl substances, um, uh, perfluorooctanoic acid, perfluorooctosulfonic acid, this is a PFOA and PFOS, um, those all have fluorine in them. The fluorine is uh, on the periodic table of elements, it's a halogen, and it's a halogen right alongside bromine and iodine, which our thyroid needs. And so when we are exposed to, and, and chlorine, so chlorine, bromine, and fluorine are all halogens. And so when we are exposed to chemicals that are fluorinated, brominated, or chlorinated, which is a large swath of chemicals, those chemicals displace the uh, iodine in the thyroid. So they're all competing for the same thyroid rece uh, receptors in the thyroid. And so, you know, in Europe, uh, in the 1940s and 50s, I think, um, fluoride tablets were prescribed by doctors to lower thyroid levels in hyperthyroid patients. So it is a thyroid suppressant. Where this is a problem is, well, thyroid, hypothyroidism, so low thyroid, is a, a widespread issue. Yes. Among people it, and just becoming, I think that it's becoming either be, people are becoming more aware of it or it's just becoming a bigger problem. Yeah. But, you know, where this is extremely concerning, certainly for anybody that has thyroid disease, Hashimoto's, anything like that, like they want to make sure that you're not being exposed to these fluorinated compounds. But if we have a pregnant woman who has low maternal thyroid, because thyroid hormone, because of, you know, this, this cocktail of thyroid suppressing chemicals, um, that is going to impact the neurological um, and physical development of her child. So low maternal thyroid, increased risk for, um, for uh, mental retardation, for autism. So these are not insignificant exposures, it's not insignificant. And so these PFAS chemicals, like I'm saying, like, okay, fine, they're found in the, they can, they can be found, they're not always found in the motor housing of the, 
um, these appliances that were used, not the primary exposure. The primary exposure is going to be through contaminated drinking water and then through more specifically through, you know, your stain resistant treatment on the couch and on the carpets um, uh, that you're exposed to. They're also found in food packaging. So if we think of <clears throat> like our grease proof, waterproof cardboard that's used to house our frozen dinners or our takeout containers or um, uh, uh, the, they line the um, inside of bags of microwave popcorn. Why? Because it's unsightly to see the oil that's used inside that bag seep through the paper. Like nobody wants to look at that, God forbid. So they have to coat the inside of these bags in this oil resistant coating so that it doesn't seep through the paper. So we and eat it instead of seeing it. Yes, we eat yeah. it instead of seeing it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's if people are interested in this topic, there's a great, um, there's a couple of great films, the um, Mark Ruffalo film, Dark Waters, which is sort of a dramatic portrayal of the legal case um, that this one lawyer, Robert Ballot, basically took it upon himself to be the squeaky wheel for DuPont, which is one of the primary manufacturers of these perfluorinated chemicals. Um, and he was suing them for 20 years and is still on their case. Um, and, and they did a you know dramatization of this, this story in this film, Dark Waters. It's on Netflix. There's also a documentary called The Devil We Know, um, which is the sort of documentary back-end story of this same um, same situation. So um, those both came out, I think, last year. Uh, and so these particular chemicals have been in the spotlight a lot more recently. I will make sure that those make it into our show notes. This is, I think, someone listening to this for the first time. I mean, we are blowing people. You are blowing my mind. So I know that my Bettys, when they're listening to this, they're going to be like, okay, where do I start? Yeah. So yes. what do I do? So you already said, go into the kitchen, just observe where the plastic is. If yeah. someone wanted to like myself asking for a friend, AKA me, uh, if I wanted to redo, so, you know, for example, I cook with cast iron. Um, yes. I, I cook with stoneware. Um, I do. I'm, I'm like second guessing now I have a ceramic. Um, it's, it's, called nonstick, but it's like, yeah. it's a, it's a ceramic, ceramic and, coating. Yeah. yeah, ceramic coating. So if someone wanted to like overhaul their kitchen, so the glass containers, uh, you said like the storage of the food. So maybe when we go to the grocery store and we, we get these like berries in plastic and the cereal or whatever it is that we're buying in plastic, or we put the broccoli in the plastic bag or whatever, how do we, how would you set up uh, in an ideal world? Like just kind of give us some action steps in terms of like the ideal kitchen, because that seems to be the big through line with what you're saying is like the food touching the touch points for the food are important. So let's talk about cookware, bakeware. Let's talk about how we would. Yeah. So, and I want to just kind of put a little um, mention to some of the things that you mentioned about like, you know, cereal and you're putting your broccoli in a plastic bag, those specifically like putting your broccoli in a plastic bag at the store and then taking it out and putting it in the fridge. Um, I am concerned about those issues, not from an individual health standpoint, but from a pollution sustainability standpoint. Right. right. So just there are different sides to this conversation um, that I can't ignore the sustainability aspect. Um, just because there's not a health aspect for us individually, um, those type of that type of plastic 
in that scenario is less likely to be meaningful in terms of exposures if we're just putting broccoli in that bag okay. for a couple of days. Not a big right. that's less yes. of a big deal. I just don't want people to forget about all plastic because like I said, we can't avoid all plastic. So, you know, in an ideal situation, you have, I think first and foremost, you're consuming as much organic food as you can find and afford. Right. That's nothing to do with the materials, but that is because we're looking to reduce levels of pesticide exposures and pesticide residues that are on those foods. Um, you know, people like to kind of think through the lens of the EWGs, Dirty Dozen, Clean 15. Um, to me, that's a yes and. Like, yeah, that is a framework that can help people budget their dollars. And so for that, I'm I'm glad that the framework exists. However, I don't think the framework is um, the right framework. And this is based on research that Dr. Lynn Patrick, who's an environmental medicine doctor um, that has been studying the relative toxicity of pesticides that are in use. And what she's found is that there's actually a 6,000 fold difference. I think I'm getting that correctly. There's a 6,000 fold difference in relative toxicity of the pesticides that are in the marketplace. And so if the EWG is giving their, is their, their framework is the amount of pesticide, meaning a dirty dozen food, this is the 12 fruits and vegetables that have the largest amount of pesticide residues compared to the clean 15, which has the lowest amount of pesticides. They're not factoring in the relative toxicity. So you might have a tiny amount of chemical on, on a clean 15, that is thousands of times more toxic than the same volume of, of uh, uh, pesticide residue on a dirty dozen. So it kind of blows that framework model apart, unfortunately. And Lynn Patrick's advice is, you know, just eat organic in as many places as possible. So mm -hmm. in an ideal world, we don't live in an ideal world. We live in the real world. Um, we are consuming as much organic food as possible. That includes our meat uh, products, our eggs, our dairy, really important that those foods are pastured, grass fed, like that is not only where we're getting more nutrients, but we're also minimizing um, exposure to these um, pesticides and persistent organic pollutants that will accumulate specifically in those fatty tissues, like, you know, fatty uh, substances like cheese and butter right? High fat. Um, so in an ideal world, we're doing that. Or our seafood, going back to the mercury conversation, it's we're eating, um, we're prioritizing what are known as SMASH fish. So it's just an acronym, S-M-A-S-H, sardines, mackerel, anchovies, um, herring, and salmon. So those are the foods that we should be prioritizing because they offer the biggest nutritional benefit for the, with the least toxic burden. Um, and anything that's outside of that is going to have some issues. So we wanna be mindful of the seafood that we're eating. When we get into the materials and items in our kitchen, let's clean up our cleaners, right? We're spraying these chemicals um, that are often heavily fragranced on our countertops, in our air. Um, and this is part of what's uh, polluting our, our indoor air quality or reducing our indoor air quality. There was a study, I think it was last year, um, that, that did an analysis of, um, I think it was the volatile organic compounds that are released from automobile exhaust and compared that to, um, or looked at what is the contribution of out of air pollution from automobile exhaust versus household items. And they found that household items contribute 
much greater levels of volatile organic compounds versus automobile exhaust, which was like, oh, wow, okay. And, you know, we have some regulations for outdoor air quality. No one regulates indoor air quality. So it's up to us to make sure that we're, we're keeping that, that clean. And that starts with not bringing in chemicals that off gas or that we're spraying into the air or that release phthalates or other, you know, toluene, benzene, xylene, VOCs. Um, just vinegar. You just need vinegar and water to clean yeah, your house. Yeah, vinegar or yeah. even, you know, and, and, I'll, and I'll kind of say yes and. So for people that have, you know, really severe respiratory issues, vinegar can actually be kind of harsh on their um, respiratory system. It can be irritating. So you can just use a simple, you know, mild soap, whether it's a, a Dr. Bronner's soap right. um, or Branch Basics product. Those are incredibly mild, but really effective. Um, and, you know, you can just use something like that if you don't want to use vinegar, because um, some people are like, I hate the smell. But that's me personally. I hate mm-hmm. the smell. Mm-hmm. So I actually don't use vinegar. I use Branch Basics, but it's just as clean. Um, so we want to clean up our cleaning products. We want to clean up our plastics. Like we were talking about earlier, getting rid of those plastic Tupperware containers. We want glass. We want stainless steel. In an ideal world, we're buying food that's packed in glass. So we're not buying the sauerkraut in a plastic tub. We're buying sauerkraut in a glass jar. Obviously, from a more realistic standpoint, it is just more important that people are eating fermented foods. There's always steps and layers. So if somebody's going to choose between not eating fermented foods or only eating fermented foods in glass, like I want them to eat the fermented food in plastic. It's still good for you. It's better for you if you are avoiding the plastic. Mm-hmm. And the same is true for conventional and organic, right? Like you should always have the veg. you should always have vegetables and if you can regardless. afford the, regardless. So yeah, I don't want people to go away from this thing. Okay. If I can't have the organic broccoli, then I should just not eat broccoli. Like it's always going to be better for you than not having it, but we're just talking about an up leveling here. Yeah. And the exception to that, I think is where we get into seafood. Like nobody should be eating swordfish, right? No, one. no one should be eating, um, bluefin tuna for lots of reasons, but one, just because of the Um, mercury count. So no one should be eating those. Anyway, so moving on, then we want to upgrade our cookware, just like you said, cast iron, enameled cast iron, carbon steel, stainless steel, glass, stoneware. That is what we want to look for. You know, the issue with, I actually have a post on Instagram um, in the pipeline on this is the ceramic nonsticks. So most of this, first of all, we don't know what they include because there's no federal regulation that requires disclosure. So we just kind of have to rely on their marketing and hope that they're being truthful and honest, which we know that doesn't always happen. Right. The fox Um, in the hen house again. Yes. Yeah. Um, But the idea is that these ceramic nonsticks, many of them are using sort of a silicone. They're not actually ceramic, right? They call them ceramic only because it's a, a, it looks like a ceramic coating. It's not actually real ceramic. Um, and uh, ceramic is also a process. It's not a thing. So your toilet bowl is, well, that technically is porcelain, but it's a, it's a, it's a process. It's not a, an object um, or a material. So they call them ceramic, but they're typically just these silicone based, even if they are truly non-toxic and they don't leach any compounds, I still don't encourage people to buy them because the coating only lasts one to three to four years, depending on how frequently you use them, at which point 
you have to replace them because the nonstick properties have completely vanished. And then it's just like this annoying sticky pan that looks terrible and doesn't work very well. So why would you want to keep buying cookware every five years? I'm using the same cookware I bought 20 years ago and I will use it for the rest of my life and it will outlive me. So like, I don't, again, I don't need to waste money on buying new cookware. And I encourage people to not waste their money. It's just from a waste and sustainability standpoint, not ideal. And what is, what are you using? You're using stainless steel or cast iron? I use stainless steel and cast iron um, primarily. And then enameled cast iron, um, you know, I use them for different reasons. So like I won't, um, I'll, I'll use cast iron for eggs and pancakes because they'll stick on stainless steel. But I, this is just, I don't know if other people have experienced this, but like if I'm cooking spinach or chard that has high oxalates, um, I find that the oxalates tend to ruin the seasoning on my cast iron. So I only will cook those in stainless steel. That's a pro tip, guys. That's a pro tip. That's a pro tip. (laughs) Um, Because if you're a cast iron junkie, your seasoning is everything. And, and often, like if you don't season, if I find if I don't season mine, at, you know, uh, on a regular basis, then I'm starting to get like, I can't like you, ha- I have to make sure that the cast iron is well seasoned and hot if I'm going to be using, you know, if I'm going to be using it for eggs, you know? Yes. And most of the, I mean, I use, I make eggs almost every day and I never have a problem with my cast iron. Um, you know, most of the challenges that people have with cast iron just comes down to cooking technique and then cleaning technique. They're over cleaning, they're stripping, you know, they don't, you know, when you pro tip cook with cast iron, you just get a scrub brush with no soap. You don't, I mean, you can use soap. I use soap on my cast iron if I cook like fish. Cause I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't want everything else I make to taste like fish. Right, 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 right. Uh, but once you've cleaned it, you put it back on the stove and you heat it. And then you put um, a thin, thin layer of, you know, I use ghee. Ghee is what I cook with. So you can just use whatever you're using to cook with, preferably not an oil that will go rancid and an oil that has a better, um, you know, higher, higher smoke point. Smoke point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but then you just give it a really thin coating and then let it cool down and it's good to go. Um I'll be honest and say a bunch of like half the time I don't even clean my cast iron. I just scrape out the bits and then I just leave it on the stove with whatever residual fat is in there and it's fine. Um, so yeah. And then just, you know, you don't soak it and you don't let it, your food sit in it for too long. Cause that'll also start to degrade that seasoning. Yeah. So yeah, that's it. And then the other thing that I'll add in the kitchen, and this is again, ideal situation is everyone's water is filtered. We didn't even get into that topic. Right. Um, there's hundreds of contaminants in our water that are not regulated by the um, safe water drinking, safe drinking water act. Um, and you know, these are fluoride, same chemicals that we we're talking about before they're, you know, ph- uh, pharmaceuticals, narcotics, dis- disinfection byproducts, um, uh, lots of chemicals that we just don't want to be ingesting. So filtering the water is ideal. Um, and I think for the kitchen anyway, that's probably the, that's probably the majority of the, of the sort of big things that we want to tackle. And then certainly if we move outside of the kitchen, you know, we can look at the cleaning products that are used in the rest of the house and the laundry detergent, again, dumping those scented candles and air fresheners, cleaning up your personal care products. Like what I, what I, it's a lot, like all of this is a lot Mm -hmm. in terms of making these changes. And, you know, one thing that I think is important to kind of leave people with is um, this is not something that you have to do overnight. I have been doing this for 12 years, right. In terms of researching this, I've been teaching for eight years on this. Um, I am still making changes, right. Because we can't, 
expect people and we can't expect ourselves to like throw out all our furniture. Like when it comes time to replace your couch, look for one that doesn't have flame retardants. When you go to, you know, uh, buy new clothes, look for ones that, you know, are organic cotton. If you, if you like them and minimize those, the synthetics and the acrylics, not because of there's an immediate toxicity issue there, although with some clothes there can be, um, you know, it's more of a, we're just contributing to this issue of microplastics in the water, the fibers that are released from these acrylic clothes, which is the sort of cheap, fast fashion that we have now. Um, those will come back to bite us in the ass because they're going to come back in our drinking water and they right. do. Right. So, and that is a problem. So it's, again, it's not an immediate harm and it's not something that I have to be fearful of the clothing that I'm wearing. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of things that we can do. Getting an air filter in your home, taking your shoes off when you come in the door, right? We are not tracking just dirt and dog poop in. We're tracking in heavy metals and particulate matter and pesticides from our neighbor's lawn that we just walked past or the park that we just went to. So taking off your shoes, opening your windows, like these are all simple things that people can do. Um, and, you know, it's just, a, it's it's a... I hate this expression of like, it's a lifestyle, but it's a lifestyle. And the nice thing is, you know, typically when people are on some kind of healthy journey, it's because they've had some health challenge and there are some degree of motivation to, to, to kind of clean house literally and figuratively um, to, to optimize their health in some way. And when we ask people who are on that journey to make a major overhaul in their diet, like that's hard. It's a bit, it's a big thing. A big ask. Yeah. If I ask you to get rid of your plastic Tupperware containers and swap them with glass compared to swapping your diet, changing your diet, that's easy. It is. So I encourage yeah. people to think about it through that lens. These yes. are lifestyle changes that for the most part, once you get into this groove, you don't really have to think about it again. And it's, and it's the cumulative effect that I think that you're really alluding to that's important, right? Yes. So it's, you know, we've talked about the, you know, the acute, like the, the acute is for all intents and purposes, somewhat studied. It's the chronic low grade exposure that we're worried about. And in the same way that having an LDL number that's high for two or three months is really not going to be predictive in any way of cardiovascular disease. It's really when we look at a high LDL number over 30 years, yeah. that's more important. And it's the same that what you're talking about now. So we've been exposed, like you just have to assume that you're going to be exposed to plastics and some phthalates and some obesogens and all the like flame retardants and the food in the water and all that stuff. But if you can slowly start to swap them out, that's why I love the the, the advice that you gave before is like, just look, just go yeah. and look and observe. You yeah. don't have to do anything. Just say, okay, like I have some, I have some Ziploc plastic containers. It was 20 for five bucks. Maybe I want to chuck those. It's a couple of clicks away on an online. Use them. You don't even have to chuck them, right? So you can store crayons in them or bring them to the garage where you can sort your nuts and bolts into like right. use them for other things, because in those instances, they're not going to be an immediate cause of, of, of right. they're not going to be in any kind of immediate harm. Right. Um, and, you know, I think we have to, I encourage people to think through more than just one lens. Like don't only think through the health lens, think of the waste and sustainability lens as well, because these things are all interconnected. And right. so, you know, and there are places where these conversations uh, uh, con conflict, right? So in the sort of zero waste, <clears throat> I want to be sustainable conversation, we have people that are reusing 
their plastic containers over and over. They're reusing yogurt containers and, and butter tubs and things like that because they don't want to be wasteful, but that's actually increasing your plastic exposure, particularly because those are single-use plastics and they're not designed to be reused frequently. So that's where we have the sort of butting up against a the sustainability, you know, re, I'm going to reuse stuff over and over again so that I can avoid sending it to the landfill with like, well, that's just, that's a health issue at this point. And so we have to kind of pick, prioritize, um, you know, what is, what is going to be the most meaningful. Um, but if we have opportunities to one repurpose, right. That's part of one of those, those R's the, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle, repurpose, et cetera. Um, if we can repurpose items, materials, um, to places where they're for, for things that are not going to be an exposure source for us, like that's okay. Um, and then what happens is our buying habits shift. So like I was saying earlier, like, okay, well, when I buy pasta sauce, I always want to make sure that aside from it being organic, that it's packaged in glass. I'm not buying it in, in plastic. Right. And then I can recycle that glass. Right. Right. So, or I can reuse it. Right. And you say, Hey, I'm going to drink out of this jar. And many stores, like we buy our milk in a glass container and you bring the glass back to the store and yeah. they give you a credit on the glass. So there's also, you know, so it ends up actually being the exact same cost as buying the in the thing in the plastic or in the, yeah. or in the carton, it's just an extra step. It's so you have to make sure you got to remember to pack it in your car when you're going to the, going to the grocer. Yeah. Which if you're me, you would forget that every time. So, <laughs> right. So I know that you, I know that you teach, uh, clinicians, there's courses that you have. So I, and we do have, we have a broad spectrum of listeners here. We have everyone from uh, naturopathic doctors and chiropractors and medical doctors who listen to us as well as the, you know, average consumer. So if someone wanted to, if there's a clinician or otherwise, if someone wanted to learn more about you, maybe work with you, can you tell us how we can find you and where we can get in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. People can just go to my website, which is lauraadler.com. Um, and all of the courses that I teach um, are listed there, the sort of foundation flagship course, which is where I usually recommend people start. Um, and we kind of did a really breeze through today of a lot of the issues that we cover in that course is called Talking Toxins. Um, and it's really a foundations course to help uh, uh, practitioners understand like, what are we being exposed to? Where are those exposures happening? How might those exposures um, affect us to cause or contribute to some of the health uh, challenges? And then most importantly, what do we do about it, right? Which is what we've just been talking about. Um, and, and that course is really focused on like, what are the things that are most actionable for people? Because we don't want to go in and say, oh, you got to rip up your carpets and... Right. You got to change your diet. You got to throw out your couch and then you got to do everything differently forever. <laughs> forever. Yeah. Like yeah. that doesn't work either. <laughs> um, and so certainly people can can check out those courses. Um, for everybody else who's maybe not wanting to do that deep of a dive, um, I would invite everyone to come follow me on Instagram at environmental toxins nerd, because I've got tons of... Uh, information there that is accessible to clinicians and non-clinicians alike. Um, and it's a great community and there's tons of information over there that people can, can nerd out on if they, if they like. And you live up to your handle girl. Like I love, <laughs> <laughs> I have loved this conversation and I, I have found it in just in preparation in talking to you, learning about all of these things. There's so many things we actually didn't even get to talk to you about today. We're going to have to have you back on, but 
So, so useful. And again, this is like the through line is helping people make better decisions. So even if it's one small little step, that is a huge change over the course of someone's life. So thank you for all the work that you do for the, for the environmental toxin nerd that you are. I honor that, you know, there's like a, we have like a little nerd namaste here. Like the nerd in me honors the nerd thank in you. you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that. And I, I feel seen. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. And I will, um, I will make sure to have all the references that you've been talking about. So your website, Instagram, uh, and some of the, um, uh, documentaries you're referencing and Dr. Shauna Swan, all these, all these things in the, in Great. the show notes for people as well. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. So I hope that you really took a lot from that conversation. This was one of the top conversations that I have had recently, because it's so applicable, Laura makes things so accessible for us. And she's clearly, clearly done a lot of work. And I love that she comes to it from a non-hysterical uh, point of view, because it can be really easy when you hear this information for the first time to just freak out, which is what I did. And so she really is very grounding, a very grounding force around that. And I just want to thank her for that. And I hope that you enjoyed it as well. And just a, another reminder, if you are interested in the Betty Body Challenge, I mentioned it just a squeak in the intro, but the Betty Body Challenge is basically nutrition, fitness, supplementation, and coaching in a group of Bettys just like you for the next month, for the month of January. And this is a way for me to celebrate the upcoming book, The Betty Body, which is going to be available very soon for purchase on Amazon. But we are printing a very special limited edition book for you, as well as giving you a nutrition program, a fitness program, supplementation recommendations, and then a community of Bettys. So hellobetty.club. So that is H-E-L-L-O-B-E-T-T-Y.club is where you can find that information. And I think I didn't mention that it's only 37 bucks. <laughs> so it's kind of a win, 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 win for everyone involved. So if you're interested in joining, I'd love to have you. And even if you're not, I hope that you will support the book when it comes out and still love you. Still got lots of love for my Bettys. So I will see you later this week. Have a great one. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's geeky magic carpet ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.